0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M. This is a podcast where we are going to explore all things related to the health and fitness of women and their children. We're going to focus specifically on many different aspects of women's health, specifically around getting pregnant, maintaining a healthy pregnancy, carrying that pregnancy all the way to term then having a healthy delivery, and also following up with the lives of the children and how we can maintain that child's health status to the best of our ability throughout their 18 years of life with their parents. This podcast will be the first in a long series of specifically picked guests that will explore spaces related to how we are getting to a dysfunctional state with mothers and children. The guest that I'm going to speak to today is none other than Dr. Randy Jurdle, who was the 2007 Time Magazine Man of the Year nominee based on his groundbreaking research in the field of epigenetics. From Time Magazine, they stated, Dr. Jurdle's pioneering work in epigenetics and genomic imprinting has uncovered a vast territory in which a gene represents less of an inexorable sentence and more of an access point for the environment to modify the genome. His trailblazing discoveries have produced a far more complete and useful understanding of human development and disease. While I know that is a mouthful, it states very clearly what great work he has done in the field of discovery related to our understanding of how our human genome is affected by the environment in a way that we never understood previously. This has led to an entire era of epigenetic understanding in human science and clinical medicine as to why we develop diseases in ways we never understood previously. His awards list is long, and I'm not going to get into it. He was a professor of radiation oncology at Duke University during his years of discovery, and then went on to be a professor in the Department of Nutrition at North Carolina State University. He is a brilliant and fascinating man who brings to the table lots and lots of information for parents to understand, to help guide us in making decisions that will change the outcome of our children's lives if we choose certain pathways as we know them to be beneficial based on the research. Let me get into a little background information before we speak. With Dr. Jurdle. So we understand that humans for a long, long, long time have had the development of diseases occur over years and years and years, and we really thought everything was genetically determined, i.e. your mom and dad gave you genes, and those genes were 50% makeup for each. The outcome that you had as a child was an amalgam of those two 50%. Therefore, we believed and were taught in medical school that your genetic determinism was if mom and dad had certain diseases like heart disease, there was a very good chance, 50%, that you would inherit those genes from your parents and end up with those same diseases. The problem with this was there was obvious signs that there were inconsistencies in this belief system, i.e. identical twins. When we look at identical twin studies, we find that their genetic code is identical, but yet they may die of disparate diseases, raising the questions as to what changed in the process of those identical genes presenting an outcome that's not the same. Dr. Jurdle's groundbreaking work helps give us an understanding of how this identical twin model actually does work within the construct of the epigenome. Let me define epigenetics. Epigenetics, as defined, is the study of changes in organisms caused by modifications of the gene expression rather than alteration of the genetic code itself. Again, this is different than the genetic deterministic model of mom and dad gave you genes and that's what you get. The epigenetic model is one where the DNA can be silenced or expressed in different ways based on environmental inputs. For example, in Dr. Jurdle's groundbreaking research, food, specifically nutrition, was capable of changing how a gene was transcribed and therefore the outcome of the fetus of the agouti mouse was altered. Suffice it to say, Dr. Jurdle proved that during the early stages of pregnancy, food in and of itself could change the expression of genes that led to an outcome in the child that would be different than would be expected if you did not add the nutrition to the child's mother's diet. Let's pause here and think about this for a second. So a pregnant human or animal or mammal of any sort, by changing the nutritional inputs, could in effect change the outcome of the child in a way that in this case was beneficial. And we're going to go through a lot of information regarding how the positive and negatives of this are disparate based on what the inputs are from the environment. But this is groundbreaking change that we are seeing play out in Dr. Drill's research. So I think you're starting to get an idea of why I wanted this to be interview number one. This is basically ground zero of what I'm trying to help mothers and fathers understand about human health as it is related to lifestyle choices that can have disparate changes in outcome, risks, or benefits to a child, pregnancy life in general. So I hope that that introduction was helpful and gives you a little bit of precursor knowledge as to what's coming in the next hour interview with Dr. Randy Jurdle. So at this point, with no further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with epigeneticist and pioneer of science, Dr. Randy Jurdle. Hi, Randy. So I am so excited to begin this conversation with you. This is for me the first podcast in a long series of podcasts trying to help mothers specifically, but families in general, understand risk and understand what our lifestyle choices, is uh, in general, anything that occurs to us from an environmental perspective, how that can play out in our bodies as what we call a phenotype or how we appear. And that's gonna be semi described by your work. But before we get into that, I sort of wanna look at what was life like pre-2000, right? So I went to medical school 92 to 96, and I went into the world of genetics being described as we have this Watson and Crick DNA, double helix, beautiful structure, and it is genetic determinism. Mom and dad give you 50% of each gene set. We get what we get. If dad had bad cholesterol, you have a one in two chance of getting that nightmare or you know, however that played out, and that was your life. And that's what we believe. And then I was told this beautiful lie called junk DNA. The, 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 the Watson and Crick is set up with exons and introns, these fancy names we called. Introns was this land on the DNA that had no value, exons had all the value making the proteins, and we thought we had it figured out. And the one thing I've learned in medicine in the last 30 years is there's no such thing as junk anything. So we are gonna talk about how you figured out how that's not the case. And then we sat there and also understood that genetic determinism also had this setup of Darwinian theory, where if you have natural selection occurring, the only reason genes really change is through dying out. And that was the dominant belief at the time. But then there's this other guy hanging out in the winds, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who's saying, no, 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 actually over time, we change during our lifetime. And... So now we have all these competing theories and where I thought it was best laid out that we didn't understand this stuff in the beginning was with twins. When you look at identical twins, they have the same exact genome in every single cell, yet at the end of their lives can have, they can have completely disparate outcomes. And so I would really like you to touch on all this and we're gonna get into some of your seminal research in 2000 when you were you know, uh, at Duke and so, Let's start there. What what is epigenetics? First, define it, because that's going to help everyone understand what we're talking about. And second, let's go into your first research study with the agouti mouse.
1: Well, I like to define epigenetics a little differently. There's a formal definition of it, but I think of it this way, and I think it's easier for people to think of it this way, too. I think of it as being the cell as being a programmable computer and that the genome is comparable to the DNA. The hardware of the computer is like the genome. It's solid, it's fixed, it's deterministic if you like to use that word. But a computer, the hardware doesn't do anything for you unless there are programs in that computer running. And those programs that tell that computer when, where, and how to work is comparable to the epigenome in our cell. So our cells basically are programmable computers. They're not hardwired computers, they're programmable computers. And this is why when you only look at genetic changes as causes of diseases and disorders that you run into trouble because it's at best half of the story, because just like you're in your computer, it can go down if the hardware goes down, but it can also go down if you get a bug in it or the software gets messed up and it won't work properly either. That part of it, which is comparable to the epigenome in our cell, really wasn't investigated until... I'd say maybe about 20 to 30 years ago, 30 years ago at max. It's most mature, the field of epigenetics in the field of cancer research. That's where I first heard about epigenetic uh, studies, but not a lot, actually, because there were some crazy people, I put that in quotes, that were out there studying this uh, stuff. And you know, people that were doing this, one of which was Moshe Schiff and he was played a big role also in the in the epigenetic world and environmental epigenomics later on that he was very very to- was told very clearly that he had no career in cancer research if he if he studied epigenetics because everybody knew knows that cancer is a genetic disease only and this is incorrect
0: right right and so when we think about epigenome epi being on genome being the genome so we're really sitting here saying that in every cell of the body, you have this hardwired deterministic, however you wanna call it, hard drive of a computer. The epigenome or the marks, or we're gonna get into that a little more, things that sit on top that tell the hard drive what to do. And we're gonna get into that even more. That's any environmental signal, right? So now let's fast forward to, or reverse in time actually to 2000. So you're sitting there at Duke, you're in this lab, you have this agouti mouse, That is set up to, if you put mom and dad mouse together, they make a yellow, obese, prone to diabetes and prone to cancer offspring. What happened then? What did you do? What did you feed the women, the women mouse, and go from there? I'd like to go
1: back even a little bit farther because it says how I got into the field. Uh, we were doing cancer research work at that time and identified a gene, which is called the IGF2 receptor. It's not really important, but it it was we identified it as being a, a very potent tumor suppressor gene in humans, particularly for liver cancer, breast cancer, all kinds of cancer. Um, and then right around that same time, it was it was defined to be genomically imprinted. Now we won't get into this, I don't think much because it's a big subject, but what it means is that one, only one copy of these imprinted genes are working. One of them is turned off epigenetically. So in effect, you're born with two copies. One was from mother and one from father. But with these imprinted genes, one of the genes on purpose is totally silenced. And I was absolutely flabbergasted that mother nature would turn off a perfectly good copy of a tumor suppressor gene something that stops cancer from occurring or slows it down. And I realized that this was such an important discovery because in fact, we had accidentally discovered the first imprinted tumor suppressor gene Yeah, that I decided that we were going to take our whole lab into the field of epigenetics because I realized that a whole big part was not being studied in the field of diseases and disorders and stuff like that that we have. The problem I had is I didn't quite know how to get into this field because I'd never (laughs) worked in that at all. But that was what happened then. So the next thing we asked was, if this, this is true, can the environment alter these epigenetically controlling units that control gene expression? And at first, when Rob Waterland came into my laboratory, which is around 2000, actually, like you were talking about, we were interested in thinking about looking at the effect of, of, he was a nutritionist, nutrition on the laying down of this mark that silenced this one copy of the IGF-2 receptor. And then we thought about it more and we said, you know, we know that scientists tend to be a bit skeptical. And I said, you know, even if we find a 10% change in methylation at this region, so in other words, either is hypermethylated or hypomethylated in the region that uh, increased or decreased. We'd be spending the rest of our life trying to explain to the scientists, which are skeptics and came from a genetic background, not an epigenetic background. They weren't doing epigenetic research. The vast, vast majority of people were doing straight up genetic research at that time. Wouldn't believe it as being important. it's, It's not biologically important. So we had to find a different model system that was regulated epigenetically and had a defined phenotype. And then that was the agouti mouse model. So that's why we used it, not actually to get into the studying of these, they're called metastable epialleles. They vary greatly between individuals as either being on or off the whole gene because of epigenetic changes. We didn't wanna really study that. We wanted to look at whether the environment was able to alter that and as a consequence, alter disease susceptibility in adults.
0: So, this is going to be critical because, again, you came at this from what I call a lifestyle perspective nutrition. You have a pregnancy state in an animal, you change the antecedent nutritional inputs, and then you look at what the downstream effects are. And, and in this case, that intron area that I was talking about, the junk DNA, that's where those CPG islands are that you're talking about that get silenced. So, the food is ostensibly putting in an input that we call a methyl group, which is this carbon atom with three hydrogens on it. Not really relevant other than the fact that that's what sits on the DNA that says, don't read me downstream. And therefore, that gene is now silenced. So the phenotype or what we call the outcome of the creature, human, animal, whatever, then changes. Is
1: that right? That's correct. So, But you had a direct link from a molecular change, which was DNA methylation. All these methyl groups that you were talking of—the carbon with the three hydrogens—that gets placed on the one base, which is a cytosine—all those methyl groups come in from our diet. And Rob, being a nutritionist, we started with, well, if we load the thing up, you know, we should be able to change right. the degree of methylation at this, which is sort of a stochastic process, and shift it. So that it was really almost all individuals, offspring were methylated at that region. And as a consequence, it would cause the animal to be brown, which was a healthy animal rather than golden yellow, which was an unhealthy animal, which was obese, became diabetic and got cancer at high incidence. So now you had a system, it's a beautiful system. That is able enables anyone to determine any scientist to determine the effect of any environmental exposure on the epigenome and whether it affects ultimately disease susceptibility. You right. don't know anything of necessarily about the biochemistry, but you know the phenomena is epigenetic, it's not genetic, right? That, that's what, and so what do we so what Rob did is he loaded the mothers up with uh, methyl donors, which is folic acid, betaine, you know, co- choline, those kinds of things where the methyl groups are present. And those are the ones that are used and that are ultimately put down onto the
0: DNA. That's, this, where, that's how that study started. And so let's pause here. Cause this is this, I could tell you, I remember the moment in my life when I learned about your work and, and it was mind blowing to me is sitting here going, okay, everything I've learned is wrong. Everything now we know is upside down. And now we see this reality that you can take a pregnant mouse, rat, monkey, anything now, and, and alter the outcome of the child just by simply changing the nutritional inputs. And now we right. understand the science behind it by your work, but this is profound. So a mother who is now sitting here listening to this can say, okay, I now am aware that my choices have a direct outcome on the on the offspring. Now, in this case, the Goudy mouse was set up to be dysfunctional, as obese, yellow, uh, diabetic, and prone to cancer. And you flipped that through nutrition right. and made the animal healthy, brown. I mean, this is the amazing offspring adaptation.
1: Health, the The offspring were the ones that we were looking at. So we made offspring that would have been tended to be more unhealthy and made them right. into really really quite healthy uh, right many 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 more and uh, offspring were very healthy throughout their whole life because of literally what the mother ate you know that chris this this study i was just thinking about this before the interview this study was done almost 20 years ago yeah i mean when it came out it hit the new york times tuesday uh science uh page and when it yes. hit, something hits there that usually makes an impact but by the time we were out a year or two after that it had hit every major newspaper probably in the world and literally every major magazine that was a news magazine that had come out at that time every one of them yeah and it's actually so what this did and i try to be somewhat not what it what it did is it ushered in the era of environmental epigenomics Right. And it provided the mechanism for the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility, yeah. which many people didn't believe at that time, even right. though there's gobs of data. So what? how do scientists bury the data like we all do? There's no known mechanism. Well, there now is a mechanism Isn't because there's two things going on in your cells, the genetics and the epigenetics, unless you study both of them, You don't have a complete picture of what's causing diseases. So when you actually said before that it was all wrong, it wasn't all wrong. It was only partially right. Yeah. The genetics approach is only partially right. The other part is the epigenetics, the programming, just like in your computer. When it goes bad, it can be hardware,
0: software, or both. Yeah.
1: And that's what causes diseases.
0: Right. It's so simple. And it makes sense why it's so simple because it's adaptive. It is yes. a labile region that allows humans to be nimble, depending on what happens in the environment. It environment. allows us to change our genetics quickly, you know, epigenetics quickly based on whatever's coming at us. And, and, and so I, I want to get into part two now. So, you prove this the world is upside down it is fascinatingly beautiful now that it makes sense why god nature whoever put this thing into place now says to us we have the ability to change our outcome based on the environmental inputs and then survive better okay so because i always think of genes having two purposes survival and procreation and that's really the major sum of it all outside of that there's you know here and there but now we have this ability to now adapt lamarckianly in the world to survive better, which I think is a a beautiful hallmark of all the mammal species. But now let's go number two, because clearly we have this output situation in the offspring based on the input in the mom of nutritional donation of the methyl groups. Okay, now go to your your, your historical value of Dana Dolinoy's work. So I'm gonna let you take that one now.
1: Well, so now we had, I, I've I've always, even when I was back in the field of of genomic imprinting, which I still am in actually, I've always thought that epigenetics and knowing about this would be very important for uh, enabling people to do risk assessment, to you know, for toxicological compounds. Because in the past, all risk assessment again was based basically on genetics, and this is why you have the linear no threshold model for for risk assessment, because it is correct. If the only thing that can go wrong or the only thing that's working in a cell as far as giving diseases and stuff is genetic, then you should it should be linear, no threshold. There's right. no dose, in other words, that's safe. Uh, but now you've got the epigenome on and you have the possibility of getting positively adaptive and negatively adaptive phenomena occurring that override the genetics to a certain degree. Ultimately, they can't and it breaks down and you just got Problems, but right. down in those very low doses that we're exposed to to many many compounds, it's not clear cut always negative, right? And uh, so I wanted to look at a class of compounds, and Dana came into the laboratory, and wonderful wonderful scientist, and is doing very well at the University of Michigan right now in continuing these studies. And she came in through the toxicology program. So there's a whole class of compounds that are non genotoxic, but they cause cancer. Right. So, what do you do? Sweep them under the rug and say, well, they're not a problem. Well, they're causing cancer, but they're not causing any genetic mutations.
0: Right. So right. So, gene- the, the, hard, the hard drive is untouched, but yeah, yet so, we're still seeing cancer.
1: Yeah. So, then you say, how is this happening? Right. And so, we picked one of them, which was
0: bisphenol A. So that was the BPA product that's been a hard plasticizer that is in was in baby bottles even, which is even more insane. All yeah, right, so go exactly. I mean, and you know, in the coatings of, that they were putting on children's
1: teeth. I mean, it was all over the place. It, 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 we were bathing in bis, bisphenol A back in <laughs> what a nightmare in in, in, in two thousand, and but yet there was. You know, there are people biochemists that found this and that, but there was really no what I would call solid mechanism by which these compounds were causing cancer. And so we then asked the simple question again, using the Goody Mouse system about whether or not bisphenol A was causing problems in animals in adulthood or maybe even in humans uh, by altering the epigenome. So we set up the same kind of study that Rob set up with, with nutrition and lo and behold at the dose that we chose, which probably was a fortuitous dose for, because it showed at that dose that we chose, which was the level that people were exposed to and had in their blood and stuff like this, that we got a higher incidence of yellow animals, and it it caused hypomethylation, which all fit together well. They were shifting, basically, the population and the offspring into an unhealthy state by exposure to that
0: level of bisphenol A. All right. So let me pause you here, because this, again, is a watershed moment for me as I'm learning this stuff, right? It, it, and I'm going to put it in another context. Next week, I'm interviewing Ken Cook from the Environmental Working Group, and we're going to talk specifically about toxicants because I think your work and Dana's work really says this. So you have this agouti mouse with the agouti gene that turns the mouse yellow, fat, diabetic, and obese. That we found you could silence that gene by giving them nutritional epigenet- epigenetic food. So you know, beets, garlic, whatever it is. The animal then offspring-wise comes out healthier. Now you reverse the process and say, okay, what happens if we put in BPA, a plasticizer, this toxicant, this, this known chemical toxicant? And you found that the reverse happens. You can actually take the animals back now into the agouti gene being now not silenced, but actually turned on, and the animals now come out yellow, diabetic, prone to cancer and obese. So now we see so elegantly, The adaptation risk now is actually a scale game. You have a scale, which side is more hypermethylated, which side is more hypomethylated, and how do your genes in each cell then play out? And then it's just like, holy cow.
1: So we don't, so we have a single gene that we're following. There are a whole bunch of genes that are affected this way. Right some hyper increased methylation, some decreased methylation, and they give rise to either bad effects or better effects. So it's like a balancing beam and all you're doing is flipping back and forth depending upon the environment that you're in. And as I said, the dose that we chose, which was sort of comparable to what humans were exposed to, we definitely showed. That these animals, the offsprings, were shifted. The numbers of them were shifted. That were shifted to yellow increase, which means that the overall health of the offsprings was going down with the exposure to bisphenol A. Now we don't know what the the all the genes and stuff that are involved in this process, but we 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 solved a very very important problem in that we now know where to look. We're right. talking about software changes, not hardware changes. Right. It's epigenetic, not genetic. And you say that's it. It's hugely important. Right. And we have examples you're looking of at a completely different set of uh, biochemical. Uh, biochemistries and stuff that are involved in the laying down of marks and changing software programs, not the ones that are causing genetic mutations. It's a completely different group of genes that are involved in these two processes.
0: Right. And, and, and so that's a really, really important point too, because we're specifically in this case, talking about your research into Goody genes, but there's thousands and thousands and thousands of genes in the Animal. DNA, the hard drive, right? So we, we I remember again, in medical school, drug-induced lupus. Lupus is an autoimmune disease where the body makes protein antibodies that target our self-tissue that then gives us a disease that we call lupus. Well, we call drug-induced lupus. Oh, by the way, it turns out that those drugs are hypomethylating certain genetic um, epigenetic areas. That's actually turning on what we see as drug-induced lupus. So now you're exactly right that your work has shown people where to look. Now we're answering questions that when I was in medical school, we had no idea why drug induced lupus occurred. Now we know it's hypomethylation.
1: Yeah. Because I mean, if you think about this, Chris, I mean, if you're sitting there and sequencing and looking for mutations and not finding any dying mutations and still we're getting a problem, you got to look some other place. Yeah. And yeah, the other and place you. is the epigenome. And that's, that's really what our research did it people. I remember, wait, I got to ask a question about something. He said, but what's the mechanism for that? I said, I can tell you exactly what the mechanism is. I said, the mechanism is an alteration in the epigenome programming of the cells. That's the mechanism. Yeah, I said, yeah. what you're asking about at that time was how is that, mech that, Effect that you're, you know, the whatever you're giving that animal be, being transduced in the cause that change, or changes, but the the mechanism is not the 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 wiring system, which is what most bio- biochemists actually study. It's right. what is being laid down program wise that's right. important ultimately. That's right. what changes the behaviors of the cells, wow. and so we. It, looked, it caused people to look at this problem completely differently. So the next thing we did, which I think you're gonna ask because it's really the most important part of this whole study yep. is we said, okay, we've now with bisphenol A, we've made these offspring sicker basically by causing not as many methyl groups to be put down on, on, this, on this gene and, and altering its expression. Can we reverse that by adding methyl groups into the diet, which we showed increased methylation rather than decreased? And lo and behold, when we did this, we basically completely reversed the effect. So it was through changes in the epigenome. So it was the first demonstration of the molecular mechanism for what
0: we always knew, food is medicine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't even know where to go from here. I have so many things racing through my mind, which is how my mind thinks. But so I come out of medical school, 1996, I go to UVA, I'm trained traditional allopathic medicine. And then somehow along the way, I start falling into this world of integrative medicine, functional medicine. and, And what really we're learning is that your research and the research of other people, is proving functional medicine, right? You're basically stating the fact that our lifestyle choices are dictating more about our disease risk and outcome than anything else we could possibly imagine in human health, right? And so I look at this now again as the reason you had to be first and and your research had to be preeminently put on the pedestal of why I want people to understand this is because every conversation I'm going to have with every doctor from here on out is going to be based on this. You know, we can talk about you know, chemicals with Ken Cook or you know, this stuff coming down the line, but there's no understanding until you understand what you're talking about. And this is, this is the bottom line, it's seminal. It's every ounce of understanding. If we understand that we are not determined hardwired, that we have this ability to alter our outcome based on our choices, that is liberating. It's like, it's like genetic freedom. You know, I'm not locked into my dad's nightmare. It's a beautiful thing
1: it is and but there's the other side of the coin and that is called responsibility and that's what people don't like about epigenetics there is a piece to determinism because you can say well i didn't have anything to do with it there's nothing i can do about it period that's the way it goes right that's not the case with epigenetics you are responsible for what you put in your mouth and what you eat and what you you know drink etc and they it potentially will have effects on yourself and if you're pregnant for example on your offspring and the males don't get away with it either because the right. developing of the sperm right. i mean those those marks are passed through that are altered by what your behavior is they're passed through
0: into the next generation and can cause trouble all right so that's a perfect segue into stage next right so number three on the list of people i want to I mean, research projects I want to touch on is Moshe Schiff's work. I know you know it well, his high-licking grooming, low-licking grooming um, rat studies. So we've talked about nutritional epigenomics, we've talked about toxic and epigenomics, now get into behavioral epigenomics and and just give another flavor of how impressive this work is.
1: Well, I'm going to backtrack again. In in that era of 2003, 2004, 2005, three major studies were published in the field of environmental epigenomics. The first one was ours where we showed with the Goody Mouse that you know, basically exposure directly to the offspring by what the mother ate can alter their disease susceptibility. Right. And now that, that's what we've been talking about now and provided the first, mech, provided the mechanism by which the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility occurs. As I said, many people didn't believe this uh, because there was no known mechanism. Well, the mechanism is now known. So now that when you're talking to your colleagues, we're past that. We know what the mechanism is. In fact, there's a lot of data now in humans that show that the same thing is occurring in humans. Right. But that's in the womb. And very, right. very early. I mean, a lot of these marks and changes occurred during the earliest stages of embryogenesis before are differentiated cell types.
0: Right, right.
1: Very early. Then Moshe Schiff come and Michael Meany come with out with their results in 2004 about literally just maternal behavior and licking of their animals. Can completely change the behavior of the offspring. Yeah, this is after birth, and yet, and demonstrated that this is due to changes again in the epigenome, not right. changes in the genome. Right. So now we have behavioral effects being altered by an effect behavioral effects.
0: Yeah, and, and I want to touch on that I, study. I, I was
1: I was astonished. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's so. It's so incredible. And this is probably how ducks even imprint, you know, after they're born, they imprint. Yeah. If you're walking around, there's a little window, right? And all of a sudden, you're their mother.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to touch on this because you and I know this study well, but I want, to, I want our listeners to hear this. So, so the rats were known to be high-licking and grooming or low and grooming, which is to say that the mother would be a, have a tendency to lick the rat a lot or a little. And so, what they did was they cross fostered the offspring into one of these two groups. So, therefore, you knew it wasn't the gene directly being transmitted to the child that had an effect on the outcome. So, that but it,
1: but it looked like that. If you didn't know it was epigenetic, you would think it was an inherited trait,
0: correct? And so, then when they did that, they showed that the, the offspring of the low looking and grooming mother that was cross fostered to the high looking and grooming mother. Entered the world in, in what I call an epigenetic memory, that the world is going to be a pretty good place. So, therefore, the, the glucocorticoid receptors, or what we call the stress response receptors, were semi sensitive, downregulated, so that when a certain stress response happened later on, it was downregulated. The animal didn't have a really bad response. And then the flip side happened, where they went from the high looking grooming rat down to the low looking grooming. So, this was a response to the child of you know what, this world may be sort of crappy, and right. you need to turn on your sensitivity gain on your receptor for stress. Get so out therefore, of dodge. Let's get that up.
1: Yeah, get out <laughs> of dodge. Get out, out of dodge you- if things are if bad things are happening.
0: Yeah. So so this gets into even looking at some of the over work in Sweden, where they looked at the you know, mothers who had children uh, born during a period of famine, their their offspring one or two generations down the line, even at higher cardiovascular disease risk. I mean. This just gets into a whole nother level. So now we know your work proved perinatal, sort of embryogenic work. And this is
1: postnatal now.
0: And now we're talking postnatal. So this gets exactly. into now. Okay, so we could potentially change, to some extent, almost anything down the line in life. Lamarckian. Again, I say Lamarckianly because we we now have the capacity genomically to change our phenotype or how we look based on lifestyle, environmental, whatever you want to call them, factors. That to me is what every parent needs to hear. Bold lights neon up in the sky. You have the ability to make a better outcome for your offspring during pregnancy, after pregnancy,
1: throughout life. And not only that, then the next study that came out in 2005 showed that these epigenetic changes can potentially be transmitted transgenerationally ah that's unreal so that's michael skinner's work so here you've got my and rob waterlin michael Meany and moshe schiff and michael skinner 2003 2004 2005 chris basically in that short period of time the whole picture the whole jigsaw edge basically of the puzzle was put together by three papers, yeah, and that's the, all. We're now what you say. Oh, it's a lot of work. This is a huge, big jigsaw puzzle, right? We're putting in the pieces now of that defined environmental epigenomics problem, or you know, mechanism basically of disease
0: susceptibility, right, right, and it so an
1: incredibly exciting time.
0: Oh, so the golden age of, of 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 for me, lifestyle medicine. I mean, it was it was, again, because I'm a mechanistic guy like you. I'm I'm not a scientist in the sense that I'm sitting in the lab, but I am a, I need to see, you know where the finger is going into Christ's side. I want to know, I'm right. doubting Thomas, right? I, I'm not comfortable. I will take leaps of faith, but only for a period of time. And the other thing i've I've learned over the years of medicine is I hold my truths very lightly because boy, I'm proven, my what I've learned is wrong over and over and over again. And then when we, we get to the new science and, and and we are now at the stage, I think very clearly in 2021 that humans need to be entirely aware that every decision they make has a downstream effect that could be positive, it could be negative. and And the vast majority of those adaptations, I think, are going to occur... If we follow a natural paradigm or do we follow an unnatural paradigm? And by that, I mean polar bear in the desert. If you're a polar bear with thick blubber and fur and you live in the desert, that's probably not going to Lamarckianly occur. You're going to Darwinianly die out. Sort of like if you have very light skin and you live in Florida, you have a higher chance of developing a epigenetic genetic damage that's going to kill you and Darwinianly you're gone. But if you slowly migrate south, maybe epigenetically, you'll survive that. I don't know. That's just how I start to think of this. Thing. Right. And the other
1: thing, too, is you're talking about, about uh, when you think things are correct and they end up being wrong, you have to change the way you view it. Right. And that, right. that happened to me, and I want to get into this. That happened to me most dramatically in the last study that I did when I was at Duke University. Yeah, we had looked at now with the agouti mouse model nutrition, toxicants, non-genotoxic toxicants. We were able to reverse those effects with nutrition. So the last thing that those all of that's chemical. I got. I started my career in science and nuclear engineering. And got into right. science through radiation biology we had talked about this before right. so i said okay we've got chemicals what about a physical agent can physical agents also alter disease susceptibility by altering the epigenetics epigenome uh and give rise to you know changes in your susceptibility to diseases right so we expose this is a uh, uh, Autumn Bernal's worked as the last postdoc I, I mean graduate student I had in my lab and so she exposed again the Goody Mouse another environmental factor to low doses of radiation by low I mean the light doses of radiation that are used for CT scans and, and you know uh, at chest x-rays from chest x-rays up to CT scans and a little bit above very low doses right um, and And it's crazy, Chris, because I really, I didn't even believe the results that we had, actually. I didn't think about them and looking back on it like I should have, because I assumed that the linear no-threshold model that we were taught when I was back in graduate school was correct. In other words, there was no safe dose of radiation. Right. It's toxic It's toxic all the way down to like no radiation at all. Right and but he, now i know that's that was based on a genetic model right well there's as i said there is more than that so anyway getting into this autumn set up the study we got animals started coming out and i never got any 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 feedback from her and i said autumn what's happening in our study we should be getting offspring we should start i thought seeing a shift towards yellow animals because radiation is bad it should cause Hypomethylation, we should get obese animals, animals that are yellow, obese, you know, all that type of stuff. And her comment was this I'll never forget it. She said, It's freaky. I said, What's freaky? She said, We absolutely have no yellow offspring. All of them are heavily modeled or brown. So the low dose of radiation, which was one rad, one centigrade, which is the level that you would get if you had a CT scan. A slice, right. every slice is about a, a rad. So if your whole body was CT scanned, you would be exposed to one rad or one centigrade. And what we had done with low doses of radiation is actually cause these animals to be healthier. It was a positive adaptive response to low doses of radiation And we then showed that it was mediated through increased methylation of the agouti locus, just like we had seen with food. And that absolutely blew my mind because I said, how the heck can this be when radiation is bad and you're expecting to have yellow animals? So there's two possibilities, Chris. Either you take it and you sweep the data under the rug and don't report it, or you report it and realized that that phenomena that other people have been talking about for years that I never believed, that hormesis is probably correct. Yeah. Hormesis is basically low doses of toxic agents cause positive adaptive responses. And you start getting the negative effects only when you get up to the high levels. And we were down. So not only do we have no effect, these animals were healthier than normal.
0: And so, and so ad, ad, adapt, thinking about adaptation-wise, right? So clearly heavy metals would be the place I would go immediately. Cadmium, yeah. mercury, they exist in nature, right? So if we, if we had no ability to deal with them as a, as a genomic we'd construct, dead. we'd be dead. Exactly. Right. Wow. So I mean- Profound. It
1: is profound. It, 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 it blew my mind. And if, so what did I say? I told Autumn, I said, I can guarantee nobody's going to like these results at all. And we're going to probably have difficulty publishing this paper. Yeah. Because I know the politics of science. Yeah. And yeah. people don't like to think about low levels of toxic compounds. And this is probably true, though. We've never done it with chemicals.
0: Right. Right. So, I mean, so let's get into that, though, because that's another perfect segue. Dosage, timing. Yep. So talk to me about dosage and time. Well, time usually you can get repair of damage, right? But
1: doses right. too, as we showed here. I my guess, and it's only a guess because that we never did it systematically, and I'm not sure if any anybody's really done it. We did a dose response curve because I knew we had to do this to get this this out because it was so counterintuitive, even to myself, and we had done the Goody mouse study and knew all this stuff. So right, I said, right. can imagine what the average scientist is going to think about this stuff. So it, it, it's probably every toxic compound is going to have a dose below which you might have a positive adaptive response. There could be some that are so kind of toxic, that you never see that. And others where you can see it very clearly. An example to me would be probably, though we never did this, neutrons, for example, exposure. My guess is that you're going to see very little positive adaptive response. That probably virtually no dose is going to induce positive adaptive responses because it causes genetic damage so rapidly and so effectively that the programming component is not really going to be able to overwhelm that very well right there are probably compounds that are the same but then there are going to be ones that are a little less like that and you get this hormetic effect where you see the positive adaptive responses quite clearly if you look for them and you're not just brushing them under the table yeah and it's epigenetically um, not motivated but determined yeah. It's not genetically determined. So so we've
0: established in a three oh, relatively important. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 we and we so we've established in a very short period of time, 20 years roughly, and, and most of the work being done in five years, that the genes exist. They have a sub superstructure there, which we call the epigenome that allows marks to be put on that silence or turn on, right? They could be caused, and we've only gone into methylation. We're not getting into ubiquitination and all that. There's many, many different ways to do this. All this is set up for genetic adaptability in society through the environmental exposures. This can happen perinatally, during the entire pregnant period, postnatally, throughout life. And now we know that chemical... Yeah. Generation to generation. Transgenerational. The epigenome can be transmitted to the child right the whole all the marks i mean the level of sophistication of the human body or the animal model to adapt is it's it's infinite uh, to my knowledge i mean it's exponential the amount of ways you can play this game in order to try and survive in society it's actually a really beautiful thing which comes back to the reason we're seeing so much more disease right now in society i mean in my world in pediatrics, we're seeing diseases now in kids that never existed. I've had two children with multiple sclerosis in their teenage years. We never saw it ever before. Type two diabetes known as the adult onset disease is now rampant. Liver disease, fatty liver. I mean, we start going autoimmune disease all the way down the line. We're seeing more and more and more. And to me, the genome didn't change. So therefore it's the epigenome that's changing and if we're not completely sure of what all the marks are, because we can't be, we haven't done enough studies, but we've done, work is showing, it clearly has to be that we're just doing everything wrong. We're all the polar bears in the desert as a society, too many chemical exposures, too much bad food, too much uh, inherent stress in society. All these things are what's giving us the outcome that we call our phenotype as being relatively unhealthy. And I think COVID was probably... One of the greatest ways to see this, right, in in a very yeah. different way. I, yeah. I would love to look at the T cells of the people that transpired from a methylation perspective. Right. they're probably broken.
1: Yeah, I know. It's uh, we now know the mechanism. Yeah, and that that mechanism is epigenetic, and that is a plastic system, and it can be changed, as you say, very early which is where it's most potent because it's when the epigenome was laid down. So that's our study. You could change it very readily and very relatively easily, but you can change it as Moshe showed after birth. So by simple behavioral effects, if that's the case, it's not hard to believe that chemical exposures can also change the epigenome after birth and change your, in effect, your behavior, your your disease susceptibility, et cetera. Uh, either in good or bad ways, it's not right. as easy to do after after the marks have been set down early on, but it's obviously doable, right? Yeah, right. And that you have responsibility for. That's as I say, people's oh, I like epigenetics because I can change, you know, by changing your diet and different things like that. I said, yeah, but the problem that some people have with it too is that along with it comes a responsibility. Whereas the when you're talking about genetic mutations, you can't change those that they were given to you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, Randy, I I, I tell you, I've been wanting to talk to you in this capacity for a long, long time. I know we're, we're, we're connected via my wife, which I'm grateful for. She yeah. is the most beautiful love of my life. And I know you had the pleasure of sitting down with her and spending time with her. And, and I followed your work for a long time. You are a, just a pillar of scientific discovery. In my mind, you have changed everything the way I see the world. And I'm just going to ask one last question. Cause I tend to think in a way that we can't change outcome in humans primarily by asking humans to make the change they need to make, because we've proven that that doesn't work as well. But we have governments that can do good things for us. And I am heavily invested in changing school food if I could ever get them to change <laughs> the inputs via our kids, via school food. But if you were to give one policy advice you know, letter, you could write a letter and say, hey, President Biden, whoever, this is what we need to do to have the most impactful change to the epigenome for human health, what would you say? I don't
1: know if it, it, it changes the, if it would, but I'm going to say it would change the um, epigenome because it, it, I have not investigated and I don't think anybody has yet. One of the problems ultimately is that you have to have targets that you can look at I think right. we're close to that now because we now know all the methylation regions that control genomic imprinting. So those are targets that you can look at and ask simple questions now. When you change your diet, are these affected? And in, if so, which ones and in which direction? Right. We have to have that because otherwise we're just, you don't know what the heck you're looking for and it's, it's impossible. Right. But for me personally, because I went through this myself, uh, when I retired, I was pushing 260 pounds. Wow! Not not healthy. I'm now down to about 185. I'll say you look great. And some of that is obviously because I I like biking and I've always liked it. But I I bike. But the other thing is that I significantly restrict my carb carbohydrate intake, particularly through eating of of bread, wheat kinds of products, any kind yep. of carbs. Um, and that's the only way I was able to lose weight and keep it off my, it's not to me a diet, it's a total lifestyle change. Correct. And that's what I would recommend. Now, does that change the epigenome? I don't know. But that
0: would be a darn interesting experiment to do. Oh man, you're hitting, you know, it's funny. I said this a hundred times. I would love to do a study in Rowan County where my office is based. I would like to take every resident of Rowan County and split into two groups. One half the group go gluten-free, dairy-free for a month. And the other group go no change to their diet. And then, and then I would, you know, if we could look at epigenetics, that would be unbelievable. But I even think just simplistically, uh, lifestyle, um, Health scores, like how do you feel? I think it would be profound. I, I The amount of individuals that I meet that have changed their diet into a time-restricted feeding coupled to an elimination of gluten primarily, how they feel, it's almost, it has to be 90 plus percent will tell you it's you a dramatic improvement.
1: Reducing gluten, you mean basically taking wheat out of the diet.
0: Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Just re- essentially eliminating uh, uh, barley, uh, rye and, 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 and wheat essentially just take it out. And, and, and dairy is turning out to be another nightmare in my world. You know, kids, when I first started practicing 20 years ago, it'd be about one in every hundred, maybe a little bit more, you know, children would react to the milk protein they call casein. They'd present in the first two months of life with bloody stools, eczema, uh, chronic, uh, congestion and fussy irritability, what we used to call colic. Randy, it's about one in four now. And, and I, it, it can't be that they've just changed the milk in these animals. I know they've changed the antecedent hormones and they've, they've kept the animals pregnant longer. So there's definitely, a, but there has to be some effect epigenetically on our human body that we are unable to tolerate these proteins anymore in volume. And so th- something's going on. And, and these would be the studies that I would love to see somebody do Targeting the epigenetic marks to see what's changed, what you know, why are the T cells responding now to casein with IgG production instead of letting it go as a a, a non non foreign troublemaker? It's just interesting, right? Well, as I said,
1: you know, and what what you could follow now because they're present, these marks are present in every cell because they were set down so early. You can follow the imprint regulatory marks by basically just taking swabs and asking a simple question, does it affect them? Because they're the same all over the body. Yes. That's we the need beauty to... of it. Epidemiologically, you can do that. Whereas otherwise, ep- epigenetics changes from cell type to cell type, time to time. Whereas these don't, they should stay the way they are. And if you're messing them up, you'll see it. And that's not good.
0: I wish you were still in your lab and we would set up a collaboration. I'd provide the patients. You'd just start doing the deep dive. That would be fantastic.
1: Well, I mean, I work with Catherine Hoyle over at NC State. I'm still on the faculty. i just well, not at Duke.
0: Tell Catherine tell so to give me might, a call. That might be the place to do it. Because we would still in North I Carolina. And I would, would love to see it. I would, you know, Randy, I think this is the stuff that's, That's game-changing long-term. You set the mechanism in, now we need to chase it down to where it rubber meets the road in each case, and I love it. Now you have to know
1: what are the genes that are epigenetically changed. We just demonstrated initially that it was epigenetic changes that were causing these issues. Now you get down to the actual genes that are involved and are epigenetically deregulated, and uh, that's, that's the next level.
0: Yeah. Randy, I'm going to end it here. We're at an hour. I want, to be, I want to be conscious of your time. I am so grateful for your time. I am even more grateful for your contributions to clinical medicine, right? So you are in the bench world, but your contributions to clinical medicine now are just going to be exponential and, and, and be around long past my life. Um, and I am unbelievably grateful for your work, your time, your passion, and just thank you. Thank you very much for talking to me. I appreciate it, Randy. Have a great day. Bye. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Dr. Jertle is an amazing, amazing researcher, human, uh, just a, a, a fantastic scientist that helped us, the clinicians, learn more and more and more about what are the antecedent triggers of risk at the pregnancy level, at the intrapartum level, at the perinatal level, and then subsequently during childhood and life in general. This research for me is the beginning of understanding of everything that's gonna come afterwards regarding lifestyle factors that can exacerbate or mitigate disease risk. So we clearly saw in this discussion that nutritional epigenetics or giving foodstuffs to a conceiving mother in the mouse world initially, but it's clear that this is happening in all mammals, can change the outcome of the fetus in a positive and a negative way. And for us, the studies over the future that are going to be critical are what foods and what inputs environmentally in the nutritional world are changing these outcomes. Secondarily, we learned that chemicals have a net negative effect against this, especially when it comes to BPA, and I would submit that likely in many, many, many chemicals. We're seeing a push-pull now between positive environmental triggers and negative environmental triggers of human health outcomes, That information clearly was in the context of during pregnancy. Well, post-pregnancy, we saw the work of Dr. Moshe Schiff discussed where it is clear now that behavioral inputs or environmental psychological inputs have an effect on offspring's responses to stress. And clearly this is likely, again, an adaptability response that can occur over many, many, many different genes in the body based on different environmental psychological experiences. I think of PTSD. I think of adverse childhood events. I think of all these different things that could happen to us as humans postnatally that then could transform our outcome based on epigenetic responses. And this is pretty critical for us to understand because we have genes for essentially two major purposes, procreation and survival. So if, if our gene hardwire, our hard drive is set, sitting there ready to help us procreate and survive, then what are the environmental factors that drive positive and negative responses in us that make those genes less beneficial for survival and procreation or more beneficial for procreation and survival. And in this space, I start to think of How are chemicals affecting our ability to procreate via our sperm function, via our maternal ovaries and their egg function? How is hormones being disrupted by chemicals or being disrupted by environmental stress? And and are the outcomes being negatively affected? And I would like to to look at these questions and answer these questions over the subsequent months and years with the experts as we dive deeper and deeper and deeper into this, this discussion of Boy, what can we change as humans to be more in line with our genetics and our epigenetics via the environmental inputs so that we have better outcomes when it comes to our children's health and specifically our mother's health before they conceive and deliver? So for me, the take-home point of this entire initial journey into epigenetics is there's a push-pull in human adaptation to environmental inputs, where if the environmental inputs are net positive, it is likely that we will live well with less disease. If the environmental inputs are negative, we will likely live less well with more disease. And I think of environmental inputs being net negatives as those things that go against what God or Mother Nature had planned. So Exposure to chemicals in toxic volumes or even in lower volumes when the chemicals are really noxious. Exposure to the wrong food types, the mass-produced, highly processed, poor quality, uh, insulin-resistant promoting foods. I think of a world where we don't help ourselves by engaging in a societal norm of stress reduction as a group of humans that are collectively living together for the betterment of all. I, I think of all of these places where we have breakpoints in what is supposed to happen and what's actually happening. And we've sort of come to a, a crossroads here where it seems like the confluence of issues are now on a net negative trajectory, which is why it seems like we have just so much more disease now it, it pervading our society of the metabolic nature specifically. You know, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, hypertension, and then the developmental space with autism and 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 degenerative diseases and autoimmune diseases of the brain. We are sicker. And for me, if it's epigenetically driven, which I submit I believe probably is close to a ninety-nine percent chance, it has to be the triggers that we are allowing to happen based on our societal decisions. So on that note, Dr. Jordan was the preeminent, perfect person to start this conversation, which brings me to guest number two, and we will talk to the president of the Environmental Working Group, Ken Cook, and we're going to do a deep dive into where the chemicals are and how that may be playing into the epigenetic discussion that we just completed. So get ready to follow me along on this journey as we look at all the different possible ways that humans are being disrupted by lifestyle choices that are not in our best interests. We're gonna continue with Ken Cook and then on to Dr. Victoria Mazes and maternal health and on and on. And I hope you really enjoyed today's experience and discussion with Dr. Randy Jertle. And as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The podcast information provided today is only for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat any health issue. And this podcast does not constitute any formation of a provider-patient relationship.